Welcome to episode 134 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This week, my featured guest is James Clegern, CEO and President at Kineticore Solutions. James leads the Kineticore Solutions team to develop the world's best short-duration and cost-effective energy storage system. With 30 years' experience managing, researching, building, testing, and deploying new technologies in military, aerospace, and energy utility industries, Dr. Klugern is now applying his engineering and system development skills to create the next generation of kinetic batteries. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. Next week, early February 2023, Distributech will be returning to glorious San Diego. It will be my first return to California since my wife and I moved and we are very excited. If you're going to be there, please say hi to me and to many of my former and future climate champion guests who will be gathering probably Tuesday, February 7th at 5 p.m. somewhere in or near the expo. For current information, please join my LinkedIn group, The Climate Champions. Kineticore is focused on enabling carbon-free power solutions that reduce CO2, NOx, and sulfur dioxide pollution to preserve our environment for future generations to enjoy. They're developing cost-effective, deployable, green energy storage for stationary, high-power, and high-cycle applications that rapidly wear out traditional chemical battery systems. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat, and I'm here with James Klegern, CEO and President at Kineticore. James, welcome to The Climate Champions. Thank you, Lee. Looking forward to chatting with you. Same here. So with regards to climate change, what was your pivotal moment? What caused you to be motivated to do something to help mitigate climate change? I think it really came back when I was helping friends recover from Hurricane Katrina back in 2005. And being able to go down to the Gulfport, Mississippi region and just absolutely seeing how much devastation there was. And they had anticipated the hurricane to not be quite that bad, but when it's physically lifting houses off their foundation and floating them two miles down the road, it wasn't very pleasant to go there and trying to help folks recover things. If what we are doing to the climate with all the pollution is starting to ramp those type of events up, it makes a very important caveat for like, wow, I need to do something. And that's kind of part of what we are working through here at Kinetic Core. What are your personal drivers that keep you going wanting to help mitigate climate change? I think a lot of those things also come into play with having a family here in Colorado where we enjoy the, the outdoors. Um, I've been a Boy Scout or Boy Scout leader for most of my life. And that kind of gives you a ingrained responsibility to be a good steward of what is going on. Conservation is kind of one of the big pieces that are taught. 
it's really important. And you need to have something that you can pass along to the next generations. And if we don't take care of what we have right now, we won't have anything down the road. When you meet people that don't believe the science or don't understand the science or what is going on with the climate, how do you help to convince them otherwise? A really good example that I was mulling over was think about going on a road trip with your friends, say, back in the 70s. Back in the 70s, everybody pretty well smoked. So you're all in the same car puffing away and everybody's breathing the same stuff that's coming out. And over the last 40 years, folks have realized that, you know, that's not a good idea. And when you go on a road trip now, you won't have usually anybody smoking in the car because it disrupts all the other passengers. And what we're doing with climate change is almost the same type of analogy. Everybody was like, oh, big sky, it can take everything that we need to do. But after a while, you realize that if everybody's doing it, you affect everybody riding in the same car. That's kind of an analogy that I was thinking of that folks would be able to understand and be able to relate to, especially the older generation, because they went through that. The other example, with my background as an aerospace engineer, I spent a lot of my career in the Air Force designing, building, and testing launch vehicles, satellites, and other aspects that we might be using humans in space. Any of those type of vessels, that's your survival mode in space. You don't mess it up. You don't mess with the atmosphere. You don't do any of those things. You clean out the filters when it needs to be cleaned out. And that analogy is such that our planet Earth is exactly like a giant spacecraft. If we don't take care of it, it'll eventually be such that you cannot survive on it. Can you talk about what Kineticore does and how it helps to mitigate climate change? Well, the key thing that Kineticore is working toward is actually being able to develop and getting ready to field a non-chemical alternative to lithium-ion batteries. So we're doing big energy storage, not the small things that go in your cell phone, but something that would be sitting in a five-foot-by-five-foot box on the side of a commercial or an industrial site eventually looking at a utility class. And as we well know, a lot of the clean power technologies that can generate clean power are intermittent. Solar and wind are all intermittent. At nighttime, you don't have solar. You have clouds. You don't have very good solar. And the wind doesn't blow 24-7. So to make those power sources available 24-7, you need energy storage. And what we are doing is providing a cost-effective alternative to lithium-ion for a stationary type application. And one of our primary purposes is to get lithium-ion away from stationary so you can put it in mobility systems like your EVs and let our type of batteries handle the stationary capabilities for making renewables smooth and integratable anywhere we need them in 24-7 power capability. So you're working on a flywheel, correct? Yes, we are. We are working on what we call a next generation flywheel. Our claim to fame is that flywheel technologies in the way of how they are built really haven't changed much in about 200 years. They were perfected pretty well back in the Industrial Revolution, back late 1700s. And everything improvement-wise up to this point now has been more better subsystems. Folks can offer better bearings, better power systems, make it more efficient. But a traditional flywheel is just very heavy, and heavy is directly related to how much it costs. 
what we are doing is bringing in a structural design change to the flywheel itself to allow us to have a low weight but high speed flywheel system. And therefore, we can get the cost down since the weight of the flywheel is directly related to the cost and make it competitive upfront to a deployed lithium ion system. So therefore, we can keep it inexpensive upfront and you retain all the advantages of a flywheel system over its lifetime, no batteries to replace, no hazardous chemical systems, and it lasts 25 years without a battery replacement. So I am very excited about energy storage in general. I talk about it all the time on my show. Sure. I think it's critically important. When I've looked at flywheel technology before, I've been excited, but it seems to never come to fruition. They exist, but not in mass and not to do all the great things that you want to do with them. And my understanding was that the mass times the speed is the combination of how it's stored energy. So if you get rid of the mass, doesn't that mean you have to spin it super fast? If you remember back in our high school physics days, the energy stored by something that's moving is what's called a kinetic energy equation. So the mass is one portion, but the speed is actually to a power factor of two. So for every unit of mass that we add, you get one unit of energy out. For every unit of energy we put in, you multiply it by the square or by itself. So if I put four units of speed in, I get 16 units of energy out. So speed is where the answer lies. And in the old structural design of the standard traditional flywheel, it's very limited by how fast it can go because of its cylindrical design. What we ended up doing is I blended aerospace engineering technologies with traditional mechanical engineering, and we came up with a structural design that is more of a ovoid shape or looks like a flying saucer. And because of that, we can spin four times faster tip speed than a traditional flywheel, which means that we can get for the same energy storage, we can have a much lower mass, almost a factor of 10 lower. And that's where the challenge has been all along is that the high mass flywheels are just too expensive to deploy. And if we can get the price down, then we're competitive with all the chemical batteries. You're getting me very excited. I do have to ask one more question. Being an ex-utility person, it's about safety. I know in the past there have been reports of flywheels kind of spinning off the rails, if you know what I mean. How are you ensuring that is not the case with kinetic core technology? Well, a traditional flywheel made either out of steel or what we call a steel carbon fiber hybrid or a composite hybrid, because of the high mass, when they have a failure, it tends to be a, how we say, an explosive event. It happens all at once, all that energy goes flying out and you have to have a means to contain it. So therefore, a traditional flywheels are usually in vaults, buried underground, have additional containers that they're placed inside of in the event that they might have a what we call a critical failure. Our design being an all composite structural design has no explosive failure modes. When we fail, it tends to come apart in a rather controlled 
manner and breaks into lots and lots of little pieces. And we call it the hot brittle pad when it has a failure and the material becomes kind of hot, but it doesn't fly out like a grenade shards going off. And it comes apart and is, a, is controlled over the course of seconds and minutes of being able to get it under control versus an instantaneous failure. So from a safety standpoint, our steel vacuum enclosure has already been demonstrated to hold down when we've had any minor failures. And it is designed to hold it in such a way that you don't have to bury the unit. It can be put on a concrete pad next to a building. Again, like any power or electronic systems, you put the symbols on there, please don't stick your finger here. It becomes like any other piece of electronic equipment that is managing power for a facility or for a renewable site. Can you talk about how the pandemic affected Kineticor? Yeah, the challenge with the pandemic has been the general slowing down of everything. Being able to get the uh, custom parts that we need manufactured. At the beginning, when we started in 2019, we could get things in two, maybe three weeks tops. Now you're looking at two to three months to be able to get the same type of equipment. And for a startup doing prototyping, that is very challenging because it stretches out the time frame that we are working with to get things to market. You can get the core of the flywheel to spin very, very fast, but you can't do that with your supply chain. Well, it just stretches everything out right now. The key innovation that we are bringing is the new flywheel itself. All of the subsystems that we are utilizing are commercial off the shelf. Bearings, power electronics, motor generators, sensors, even the steel vacuum enclosure is stuff that is readily manufacturable. But when you're not doing it yourself and have to rely on other teams to bring those in, they have to rely on their suppliers and suddenly it kind of cascades from a, oh yeah, I could have that for you in three months to a, I can have it for you in nine months. Can you talk about your background, how you got where you are today? Like I've mentioned before, I'm a retired U.S. Air Force officer. My background is in aerospace engineering. My time in the Air Force was absolutely wonderful for an, a young engineer. Lots of different projects to work on, ranging from R&D to development to test. Finally, after 15 years, I was a test director with the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, and I was running tests with you know anywhere from 10 to 250 people on them, and some of them were very exciting because I got to blow things up. <laughs> but all of those things with my background is every single one of those jobs was firsthand responsibility and firsthand impacts with environmental stewardship and being able to be responsible with what programs I was working with. And that's a real important thing that the Air Force focused on. And it's something that we have carried forward with what Kinetic Corps is doing as well. Can you talk about setbacks that you've had? We probably touched on the biggest one, which everybody's like, pandemic. Ah, it really was the means that we had some problems of accelerating it as fast as I would have liked. Coming from where I was doing program planning all through the Air Force, you go, all right, here's the plan. Here's how we're going to execute. And we're going. We have a schedule. And you throw the COVID into that mix and your schedule is no longer yours to control. 
So that's the challenge that we've really had a couple times where we had to kind of do a reset. All right, well, we can't get that part. What else can we do? Instead of having our full-scale prototypes out for pilot deployment at the end of this year, having them going out the door at the end of next year. So our setback, yeah, we're probably looking at about 12 months over the course of the last three years. It all kind of adds up. Is the supply chain back on track or are you still seeing issues? Yes and no, it is getting better. But because in a prototyping mode, we have to build unique pieces and therefore we have to rely on our supplier to be able to secure the materials to have his people available. And it's getting better because we have less folks that are sick and all those other locations and stuff like that with everybody getting their immunizations more so but it still hasn't quite caught up yet. Can you talk about the success that you're most proud of? Our biggest success really, I think, is we were established as a LLC back on the 9th of January, 2019. So we are four years old at this point, but we have gone from a paper design to a full virtual prototype our first year, to a manufacturing capability, to starting to integrate all of the subsystems and testing out which ones we could use, which ones we couldn't in 21. And then now in 22, we effectively have the full prototype and are in the process of having a third-party validation. So even with the delays, we've gone very fast and getting to the point of trying to get everything ready to go out and be able to support the renewables market with this new energy storage capability. When you look out 20, 30 years from now, how do you see the Earth's future? Do you think it's going to be just fine? Do you think there are going to be a lot of problems? I think the Earth is going to see a continuing evolution from the climate change that, I mean, what we do as a species isn't changing that fast. And we are still in high demand for the power systems and electricity and bringing all those out for folks that don't have it. So being able to identify that we are a major cause of what's going on is important. And then right now, it's more of an educational piece to get everybody on board that, hey, we all need have a part in this. 20 years out, 30 years out, if you take a look at what the Pacific Islanders are already dealing with, their islands are sinking. Reality-wise, the water level is going up. So they are having to start to already abandon some of their homes that are only six to 12 inches above sea level. And we have a whole bunch of that here in the United States that you know most of Florida, East Coast, West Coast are going to have some significant issues they're going to have to deal with. And part of what we are looking at having to do is how do we slow that down? And that's to really implement the decarbonization aspect. And you got to have the batteries. I mean, if you're going to bring in those alternate forms of power that people are willing to accept, you need to have the batteries to be able to get them implemented in mass to make a difference. And a lot of those things also come into play. I see in 20 years from now, looking at probably a good third to half of our vehicles on the road probably will be electric. That's a great source of eliminating the carbon aspects. If you don't just do the 
you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul. You have to have the renewables pumping in the power to power the cars. Because if you're powering the cars with coal-fired power plants and natural gas power plants, you're just shifting the problem from one place to the other. So to be able to implement a lot of those other pieces, renewables is going to be one of the keys. And has the pandemic changed your perspective on the future of the planet at all? If anything else, it really shows how fragile things can be because we might be getting another pandemic in another five years from now. I'm hoping that we've learned enough from this one to be able to adapt to the next one, but they do happen. And when we're getting, I think the current headcount is now we've topped 8 billion in the world. And as we keep increasing the number of people, you know, we will probably have more of them coming along. I can't say that we did the best job at handling the current one over the last three years, but given that the last one we really had was back in the early 1900s with the Spanish influenza. That killed a lot more folks than what the COVID virus did. But when you don't have those things planned out, it's very hard to have a really good, everybody's in all this together, let's go work together thing <laughs> to make it happen right. Do you have advice for people that want to help to mitigate climate change? Get educated on what's going on so that you can understand what the pros and cons on some of these solution paths that are being offered. And then you can use that to influence some of the political folks. So you're not so easily bamboozled by, oh, this particular technology is going to be the end-all be-all. It does everything. Support this. And they can step back and go, all right, well, your technology does really good in this area. But how do we tackle the five other areas that we need to address? So education and just being aware of what the possibilities are and that really there's no one solution that does everything. Folks just need to be aware and be prepared to take some action on it. One of the things that I often say is all arrows in the quiver. And by that, I mean all technologies because we don't know which ones are going to contribute what solutions. I mean all people, all countries, all governments, all companies. We really need everybody engaged with whatever tools we can muster. Correct. I would agree with you on that. From an energy storage standpoint, I'll give you a quick example. There are short duration, long duration, chemical batteries, kinetic potential energy, thermal storage. Each one of them has significant advantages and some of them work better in certain applications than others. You wouldn't want a thermal energy storage system to be your, well, how do I generate power from that? It's great for transferring heat and or, you know, locking cold down for doing like uh, air conditioning type applications and other things, but it's not as efficient as some of the other capabilities that do direct electricity conversion for like a traditional battery, but they have areas that they work really well in and they should not be discounted. So multiple arrows, multiple applications, each of them provides a solution that can be worked through. Combating climate change is a multifaceted, multiple arrows in your quiver type task. No one solution is going to be able to do anything and everything. So you bring people onto your podcast, encourage them to, to well, 
how does your application work really well? How does it blend in with the others? How can we make yours enable other capabilities? That's one of the places that Kinetic Core really does bring to the forefront is that we really are an enabling capability for renewables because our system is specifically designed to be able to handle high power and heavy duty use during the day, multiple cycles during the day, which for a traditional chemical battery would burn it out very quickly. So instead of having your chemical battery giving you a 10-year life, you might be replacing it every 18 months. And a kinetic battery is really well designed to be able to handle the heavy-duty loads because it has literally unlimited number of charging cycles it can do during the day. But we are not appropriate for anything that's long duration, whereas a chemical battery works very well for that if you're looking at six eight, 10 hours plus, that's something that a chemical battery would be much better suited for, which we aren't. I think one of the key things that we have discovered, not just in um, promoting a non-chemical battery, but promoting energy storage as a whole, is the fact that folks just need to be educated. One of the prime examples, we were talking with teams at the National Research Energy Lab and they have their models very well situated for handling a chemical battery that cycles one time a day. You know, hey, we know how that works. We know how it lasts. We know how we can use it. And we said, well, team, we've got a battery that'll do high power and you can do 20 cycles a day. How would you like to use that? And their primary response was, oh, our models don't know how to handle it. Including costing it out and deciding on the value. Some of the costing and value, when you look at a levelized cost for energy storage equation, it's all about how long the battery lasts. How many cycles can you do? If you can have a battery that lasts for 25 years at 20 cycles a day, you don't have to replace it. You don't have to transport the replacements. You don't have to recycle the replacements. You don't have to do all these things that usually add a big chunk of change to a traditional battery and the manpower to change the battery. All that extra cost goes away when you have a battery that lasts a long time. Therefore, our particular one, we've done the the numbers, you're looking at costs that are a half cent to maybe four cents a kilowatt hour over the life duration of our battery. And our battery has the lifespan of about 10 gigawatt hours. It would be great for an energy storage system combined with solar or wind in the Pacific Northwest because we get sun, then we don't get sun, then we get sun, then we don't get sun throughout the day, and we don't use a lot of energy at night, so it might be a great solution. In Washington State, maybe not as much of an issue, maybe more mid-Northwest. Our battery doesn't care what temperature it is outside, whereas a chemical battery is very unhappy if you get it too cold. As many of our folks have left their electric vehicles outside when it's, you know, dips down below zero, their range suddenly goes from a full tank to less than half just sitting in the cold. Our batteries don't care. They can go all the way down to minus 40, all the way up to 120 degrees. Therefore, it gives you a wider availability for deploying them. So we can go hot, we can go cold, we can go in the middle, doesn't care. 
one of the advantages of our design is that it can be manufactured with robotic manufacturing techniques and can be set in motion for being put together in an assembly line. And so a what we call a mini gigafactory is certainly in the future of what it could be done. And that has also been an issue with traditional flywheels is that how do you move a 10,000 pound flywheel down an assembly line easily? It doesn't, but moving a 500 pound flywheel down the assembly line becomes doable. You wouldn't be great for a mobile solution, but for a stationary, it's awesome. Correct. As the good engineering answer of it depends, there are some mobile applications that we would be suited for, but those would be big, like ocean-going ships, maybe trains, type of applications where you have a lot more volume and a lot more consistency on the path that the particular mobile system is working with. But in general, you're exactly right. That's why we mentioned earlier that we are designing ourselves to be an alternate for lithium-ion. Lithium-ion can be packaged into mobility very, very easily. We cannot. Is there anything else you want to say? People need to be able to come together and understand what the climate solution is doing and that pollution is a key portion to that. Ask the Pacific Islanders if they're like, oh, climate change is not happening. Well, um, our island is sinking. What else do you want us to say? Our Earth really is the spacecraft that we are all riding on. If we don't take care of it, we don't maintain it, and don't poison the air that we're trying to breathe, it'll last for another couple billion years of generations worth. But if we don't take care of it, we're going to be needing to find a new place sometime in the future. Well, that was a beautiful poetic wrap-up. Now I'm going to wrap this up with a wrap. You're a steward of the planet. It's what you care about. And it's because you were involved as a big boy scout. Don't mess with the atmosphere or you'll cause a scar. It's also like everybody driving in the same car. We want non-lithium solutions. We need a non-chemical deal. So you're building the next generation of the flywheel. We have to have clean storage. We know it is a need and you finding the way to do it is reducing cost and weight, but increasing speed. When I asked you about how you got here, you talked about starting as an aerospace engineer and the people that you're worried about that will be affected the most are the people that live on the coast. James Cluggern, I wish we could talk more. Good luck at Kinetic Core. Well done. Like five people in the same car smoking, our Earth really is the spaceship we are all riding on. If we take care of it, maintain it, and not poison the air we are trying to breathe, it lasts for another couple of billion years, for generations. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, Please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. And check out my new YouTube channel. Just search for The Climate Champions and Lee Crevat. 
Hey, I'm a big storage fan, so I'm very excited about the potential for a flywheel that can transform stationary storage. You can learn more about using kinetic batteries for renewable support, peak load management, and boosted fast chargers for electric vehicles at their website, www.kineticore.com. We need all arrows in the quiver, and I'm glad James is doing what he can to help mitigate climate change.